are following through at a higher level than anticipated on our 2016 housing levy. And so we want to make sure that folks in the community know that we have been efficient and effective at using those dollars. And we want to show them how that 2016 levy has been put to good use. Well, that's Seattle City Council member Teresa Mosqueda touting the accomplishments of the 2016 Seattle housing levy and letting the council know that crafting a new 2023 version, as that seven-year levy expires, will be a top priority this spring. So how big of a levy is the city considering here? Also, will Seattle finally emerge from the shadow of a consent decree looming over its police department? Plus, why does Mayor Bruce Harrell need a $280,000 consultant to help him express his position on sound transit alignment? Well, these stories and a few other Easter eggs you want to stick around for, too, on this early April version of Seattle News Views and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are mine, all mine. And I am back with Erica C. Barnett of Public Cola as David Croman continues to take some family time off. Erica, always good to see you. I need to check in on this one. Which meetings are more exciting these days, Seattle City Council or Burien City Council? You've been covering some fireworks recently. Yeah, I don't know if exciting is the word I would use, but um, it's definitely, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty raucous down there in Burien. Um, They've been um, debating what to do about an encampment that has been, uh, that that until this week was located outside um, the Burien City Hall and Library Building. Um, Those folks were, were, were moved uh, out of there and immediately, um, you know, set up an encampment, set up their own tents again um, nearby. Hold that thought. I want to make sure that we... No, quite all right, quite all right. These are the Easter eggs I'm talking about here. Got it, got it, got (laughs) it. All right, well, more more on what's happening in B-Town in just a little bit. Thank you, Erica, for being here. Thanks also to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast. Find them on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks also to our show patrons, the SMVB sticker campaign, ready for you. You can get your very own decal for just... $5 a month pledge. Angie, Cindy, I'm sending out stickers your way this week. Thanks for your support. Send back a photo, if you would, of the decal so I can tell everyone just how stuck I am on you. And finally, thanks to Converge Media, our partner for the video version of the podcast. Check it out on Converge Wednesday nights at 7. Off we go with right here, right now. Well, a Seattle City Council update for this week. For the immediate future, the Finance and Housing Committee meeting will be canceled and replaced with the understudy known as the Select Committee on the 2023 Housing Levy. Mayor Harrell is talking about tripling the size of that levy, raising it up to $970 million. He made that announcement last week. So the owner of a median-priced house in Seattle pays $114 for this levy today. With the new proposal, you'd be paying about $390. Erica, I just want to start with this idea of why is this number so big? What kind of rising costs is the city dealing with? Why does Seattle need to triple what it's asking for with the housing levy? Yeah, the um, the housing levy is, um, you know, something that provides, you know, thousands of new homes every time um, we renew it. And the last time the city renewed it was, in, as you said, in 2016. Um, the, between 2016 and now, though, the price to uh, to construct apartment buildings which is mostly what the housing levy builds, um, has really increased dramatically. So um, when you're looking at, you know, almost a billion dollars, what does that get you? Well, not as much as you might think. Um, in real terms, uh, the housing levy ended up um, overperforming. So there, it built, you know, somewhere near 3,000 um, apartments, homes uh, last time. And this housing levy uh, mm-hmm. is uh, supposed to build around 3,100 new homes. 
And so we're talking about a tripling of the levy for not that much more um, actual housing. Um, so there's there, yeah. there's the cost of construction. There's also just the um, the fact that there are some, some new things in this housing levy that I think other housing mm-hmm. levies did not anticipate, um, like the need to operate right. and maintain and pay people to run all that new housing. Um, so they're right. Um, right. upping investments in that this time. Right. And the high cost of land, too, certainly a big part of what's going on with this price tag, too. And just looking at this, Erica, I know Seattle voters really like to vote yes on stuff. But this levy is popular as it it has been in the past, even when it was doubled back in 2016. I'm just trying to figure out how are voters going to react to this big price tag? Yeah, they certainly wouldn't put this on the ballot um, if they had not been polling, testing out various levels. Um, And so, uh, you know, I know there's polling that shows that up to a billion um, would probably pass. I think over a billion, it gets a little more uh, iffy. But I mean, there is there is solid polling out there that says that people will uh, will vote for this. Um, and, you know, and I would just editorialize a little and note that although this is, you know, a, a large increase um, in the property tax for, for housing, um, you know, our property taxes in Seattle are relatively low compared to the rest of the country. And, of course, we don't have an income tax here, so we rely heavily on regressive things like property taxes and sales taxes. But, um, you know, $300, um, right. give or take, over the course of a year um, is is not that much money. Now, I know that it's cumulative and that uh, property taxes add up, but, um, you know, I think people are likely to look at this and say, eh, you know, yeah. it's it's worth it. We can't not build housing. I, just in looking at this, I know you've reported Seattle's payroll tax on big businesses, otherwise known as Jumpstart. Of course, that's supposed to be going towards affordable housing. Now we also have this new social housing measure that voters just passed getting in on the action too. This bigger question of how many affordable housing measures do we need? Are voters going to get confused by all these different pieces floating around? Some thoughts about that. I think voters are definitely confused already. Um, I think, you know, it's it's really hard to keep track of all the different ways that we pay for housing. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that at a certain point, you know, to your to your question about whether voters will support this this tripling at a certain point, I do think people are going to start asking, you know, why does housing cost so darn much? Um, and, you know, I, I gave some of the reasons, but, you know, there are other ways to pay for housing and the social housing um, initiative, you know, outlined one possibility, which is just acquiring buildings that already exist, um, which is much cheaper mm-hmm. than what we do through the housing levy, um, which is to build entirely new buildings from scratch. So, you know, I think that um, there are lots of different options for uh, for providing housing um, it is very confusing. Um, and I and I do think that at a certain point, you know, I, I don't know if it's this election. I don't know if it's a future election. But at a certain point, voters are going to kind of start scratching their heads and, and wondering why this is so expensive and what we're getting for uh, for these huge investments. Yep. Yep. Very good point there. Well, I wanted to move on to another story that you've been reporting on recently in Publicola about the King County Jail downtown. A lot of issues there. I've reported some of them on the podcast. The population and the length of stay for inmates has been on the rise. Inmates aren't always getting the treatment they need. Last year, six people died, four of them by suicide. Erica, what is the King County Council looking at this week to try to ameliorate this situation? What's going on? One thing that the County Council is looking at is uh, moving 150 men to a jail in Des Moines called SCORE, the South Correctional Entity, which is a jail that's owned by, um, I believe, six uh, suburban cities down there. And... um, 
the thinking behind that is that because the downtown jail is overcrowded for the number of guards that are there, it's extremely understaffed and there's, you know, it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, a good or safe place for, um, for, for folks to be right now in a lot of ways. And so, um, so they're, they're talking about moving 150 people out through this contract. Now this is very controversial for a lot of reasons among which uh, is the fact that uh, visitation is different there, it's all video visitation. Um, the fact that attorney access uh, to clients is more limited at SCORE. And, um, you know, just the, the overall problem that we can't just infinitely move people around like chess pieces um, and solve the problem of, uh, of overcrowding or understaffing at the, our jails that way. Eventually, it's it's going to catch up with King County, and I think I think sooner than later because the uh, population population at the downtown jail keeps increasing. So, um, so this this was very controversial. Um, the uh, King County Council uh, will be taking a final vote on this, um, but the uh, you know the contract remains extremely controversial, particularly among folks who say, you know, let's let's just stop booking for some of these low level misdemeanors. That's, and that's the big piece of it, because it sounds like SCORE, you, you touched on this earlier, it's had a few issues too. It's, it's as much as there are issues at the King County Jail, it sounds like SCORE has had some, had some issues around it too. Yeah, it's had um, some very high-profile deaths, in fact. Um, there was a woman um, with mental illness who was in solitary confinement for four days um, and, uh, and died um, in uh, solitary confinement at SCORE. Um, her family was ultimately uh, awarded a $2 million settlement. And, you know, the the King County um, legislation says that they won't transmit anyone with severe mental health problems um, or, or physical health problems to SCORE. But as a lot of folks pointed out, um, people with expertise in treating mental illness and um, and treating folks in the jail, um, it is it is very difficult to predict who will develop, um, you know, uh, mental health problems or who will manifest mental health problems. You can't just there's not a category of people who will never be at risk for suicide, who will never be, you know, at risk for behavioral yeah. health conditions. And so they're, they're banking a lot on this idea that they can identify people who are low risk and will always be low risk. But that's just not the reality when you're talking about people who are in jail, who are in solitary confinement, which, you know, definitely wow. worsens mental health conditions. Absolutely. And thank you for that. And we're going to move on at this point, but there's so much left with that story. I appreciate your reporting on it, Erica. So we're talking about something that's pretty big here for the city of Seattle. After 11 long years, is it time to end the consent decree the Seattle Police Department remains under for officer bias and the unconstitutional use of force? We're looking into that coming up on Now Hear This. Well, in case you missed it last week, Mayor Bruce Harrow, with representatives from the Department of Justice, asked a federal judge to end the consent decree the SPD has been under since 2012 for officer bias and the unconstitutional use of force. He says there has been some hard work put in over the past decade plus. As mayor, I've repeatedly said in other forums that our highest charter responsibility is delivering constitutional policing and effective public safety to every person in every neighborhood, every person in every neighborhood. The filing today represents another step toward that goal. Erica, my question is, are we there yet? U.S. District Court Judge James Robart has not been afraid to say Seattle has been out of compliance a number of times. I remember very recently during the protests of 2020 that happened. Is Seattle at this level of 
substantial compliance. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, I will say first what the city thinks, which is, um, you know, that they absolutely are. The um, the city's memos supporting the end of the consent decree used phrases like, you know, completely transformed, dramatically transformed, night and day. Um, and, and so they certainly think so. Um, I, I would sound a note of caution and say that, um, you know, as you mentioned, 2020 is pretty recent. And that is uh, that is when, um, you know, Judge Robart raised some serious concerns about crowd control policies, which are not part of the city's request. Um, they have they have acknowledged that they still have work to do. So, um, you know, Judge Robart, as you mentioned, has been more than willing to, to rule the city out of compliance um, when they uh, screw up. And um, this kind of overconfidence, I would say, in the police department's complete transformation could uh, could backfire. I noted in my coverage that the police uh, are investigating and and I would say somewhat slow walking the investigation of a uh, the killing of a pedestrian by a police officer uh, who was uh, heading to the scene of a nearby uh, 911 call that was initially identified as an overdose that he needed to provide uh, Narcan at um, that turned out not to be true. So that investigation mm-hmm. is ongoing and, you know, that could, that could ultimately be an issue with the consent decree. So, so I would say that, no, I mean, I don't think that they are so dramatically transformed that these, uh, you know, um, that these over the top statements are necessarily justified, but, you know, there are a lot of reasons that the consent decree, yeah. um, is, is, is problematic both for, um, you know, both for the police department, but also for reforms, which it's been kind of difficult to implement in some cases, specifically because a consent decree exists. It's been a a clunky decade plus when we talk about the consent decree and the process, because I think back to 2019 when the Seattle City Council put together some police accountability legislation. Then the mayor negotiated a new deal with SPOG, the Police Officers Guild, and a lot of those reforms were negotiated away. Can you talk about that piece of it? Yeah, the um, SPOG, uh, the police union, the main police union, is currently in negotiations with the city. And one of the things that the um, that the letter that uh, the um, uh, that, that the mayor and DOJ sent to Judge Robart, and that was also cited in a memo um, that accompanied it from the city's labor negotiator, was that you know we need to actually implement these uh, reforms as part of the SPOG contract. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was unusual. Um, the uh, Seattle Police Management Association um, adopted some reforms around uh, discipline in their contract. And, you know, these, the agreement that the city proposed says like, look, we've got to negotiate similar reforms um, around arbitration, around transparency, and around uh, misconduct in the SPOG contract. Now, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, in 2017, yeah. the uh, the city adopted a bunch of reforms that got overturned the next year in the SPOG contract. So mm-hmm. I would say, uh, you know, right. it, th- there's a lot of tough talk in here, but we'll see what actually comes out in, in the contract itself. Absolutely. I wanted to move on to another interesting story that we touched on at the top of the show here. What is happening down in B-Town? Burien's response to homelessness. The city evicted a tent city there on the main drag of 
Burien on 152nd. That camp simply moved maybe a block away. I'm just trying to figure out what's the city doing. Yeah, the um, the encampment had about 15 tents. Um, and as you said, folks, um, you know, just moved because no one, uh, the, ultimately, the issue was never resolved. Um, the the hope from the city of Burien and from outreach uh, workers down there was that King County Regional Homelessness Authority or the King County um, Department of uh, Human Services would provide some resources so that people could, you know, maybe go into hotels nearby. Now, of course, there's no hotels at all in Burien, um, you know, or um, that there might be some sort of um, quick fix uh, tent city or tiny house village that could be stood up. But since none of that happened, of course, folks just have to go somewhere else. And so now that that has happened, people are um, are very angry, um, I would say. And, and the, the meeting last night at the Burien uh, City Council yeah. was, um, I would say, much more pitched and heated than previous meetings where people were still kind of trying to find solutions. Um, now Burien is looking at the possibility mm-hmm. of extending its camping ban um, Camping is already um, banned in parks in Burien, and now they're talking about extending it to all city properties right. and making some other changes to make life um, mm. more difficult for people experiencing homelessness down there. Wow. It's just very clear you have a situation in Burien where there are no the infrastructure needed, if you want to call it that, to support the people who are there. Yeah, I mean, Burien is a very small uh, city, and it has a very small budget. Um, And so, uh, you know, in in fairness to them, I mean, it is extremely hard to come up with, they estimated, um, the city manager, um, Adolfo Bailon, um, estimated that it would cost about a million dollars to stand up a, a tiny house village for 80 people. And it's it's unclear what the homeless population in Burien exactly is, but it's in, you know, the dozens to, on the very outside, maybe a couple hundred. So a uh, million dollars might not sound like a lot to us in Seattle, but it is quite a large proportion of, uh, of Burien's budget, which um, I believe is around 35 million total. So uh, it, it's, it's a tough problem that, you know, is going to take outside resources if they're going to solve it. Um, meanwhile, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority is very focused on downtown Seattle um, and its partnership for zero effort to essentially um, eliminate visible homelessness downtown. So um, I think that is one reason that um, the request for money from KCRHA fell on deaf ears. Yeah, that's a great point. There's so much action happening in downtown Seattle for the KCRHA. What happened to these outlying communities? Definitely seeing that play out in Burien here. Well, all right, we need to talk about something coming up here. A $280,000 consultant fee paid by Mayor Bruce Harrell's office to build consensus on a new sound transit alignment route. Erica's got some details on Transportation Talk. Erica, you reported last week on Mayor Harrell spending $280,000 to hire consultant Tim Cease to work on building consensus for a new sound transit alignment here. What's going on? This is a pretty messy story we're talking about here. Yeah, um, this is, so as you said, I mean, you summarized it succinctly. Uh, the city um, of Seattle uh, spent $280,000 to, to hire Tim Cease, um, who is a longtime fixture in the political consulting world and used to be deputy mayor. Um, to to essentially, um, well, as according to the contract, build community consensus around a light rail route. Um, the uh, 
the issue um, or the two main issues are the north and south ends of downtown Seattle, where those stations are going to go. In Chinatown, there is a fierce debate uh, over whether it should go at Fourth Avenue in the heart of Chinatown or somewhere outside the uh, neighborhood. And the preferred alternative that the Sound Transit Board adopted is indeed the one that Bruce Harrell uh, sponsored and supported. Um, and that avoids Chinatown by adding a station um, down near the stadiums and one uh, right next to the existing Pioneer Square station. Um, to the north, it also, uh, the preferred route also eliminates right. a Midtown station that would have served First Hill. And I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this all went down here. I know you had some concerns about that. The Seattle Times picked up on this later and said, well, and, and actually had some words from the mayor on this one saying, hey, I hired a consultant to build some consensus. We built that consensus. What's the big deal? I, I just wanted to tear apart that 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 issue with you here. Yeah, it's extremely unusual for the city to, first of all, um, hire a lobbyist at this level to um to argue uh, its position with the Sound Transit Board and to try to build consensus by, you know, meeting with community and uh, and sort of presenting a united front. That that in itself is unusual. The size of the contract is extremely high. Um, I you know spoke to a number of consultants who said uh, they would kill for a twenty thousand dollar a month contract um, to. You know, and of course, according to the contract, Cease was working 20 hours a week. But, I, you know, I would say that is just kind of a formality that's written into the contract. We don't actually know how many hours uh, he was working. Mm. But um, but yeah, I mean, the size of the contract okay. is, is is astronomical. And um, in comparison, a couple of years ago, there was uh, former Mayor Jenny Durkin signed a contract with um, a consultant and fantasy to do to basically serve as the city's designated representative of Sound Transit, which is a more technical job. Um, and she was paid uh, $180,000 a year as opposed to $280,000. And, um, you know, Seattle Times splashed that all, all over the front page of Local. And it was considered this, you know, this huge story. I wrote about it first um, as well, um, like this time, and the Seattle Times mm -hmm. picked up on it. But... You know, this is this is definitely um, a questionable use of uh, again public funds yeah. um, to to argue a position that is by no means the consensus of the community or the people of Seattle. Interesting. Yeah, th there's there's a lot still coming out with this one. Sound Transit is such a agency to follow here, and I think about all these different things as we start wrapping up here, Erica. You've got Sound Transit. You've got the Seattle housing folks and all that, all these different press conferences flying at us all the time. Do you have in the back of your mind a thought about the best pr press conference you ever went to? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, the best press conference I ever went to. Um, okay, that's going to be that's going to be hard um, to come up with on the fly. I will say um, one of the funniest press conferences I ever went to was when um, Mayor Jenny Durkin was new in office. It was her first press conference, and she didn't really, um, I think, or her media people didn't really understand uh, who was press and who wasn't. And so they let in um, a, uh, a guy who is a notorious um, local conspiracy theorist about um, Kurt Cobain. And uh, he set up his little camera, mm. and I don't remember what the press conference was about, but um, I know that all his questions were about why the city was uh, was covering up what really happened to Kurt Cobain. That that's that's a pretty good one. I the one that I had <laughs> in the back of my head was when uh, Clay Bennett came to town and was trying to uh, explain to people how 
uh, his purchase of the Seattle Sonics was not a situation where he was going to move the team out of town. And you could almost see everyone in the audience, the entire press corps, rolling their eyes at the same time. So that that's the wow. worst press conferences <laughs> that I've ever been to. Yeah, yeah, always good stuff. Erica, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks to everybody for listening to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. We can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen. Please do find Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon, too. Would very much appreciate your support there. And finally, thanks for watching on Converge Media as well. We'll see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2023.